Father, we thank you that it is by your word and the powerful spirit that you brought us understanding as your people, that you grow us in our wisdom of how we are to work out who you made us to be in Jesus. We pray as we come to this intriguing passage tonight in your word. Lord, as intriguing as we might be, you would help us above all to let these words sink down deep into our hearts that we would know more carefully what you expect from us as your people and what we can expect in the here and now. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I imagine probably all of us here tonight have gone through some kind of orientation in the past. We've joined a, a new club, we've started a new job and a new workplace. And it's not as if you just get stuck into your new role on the first day. You need some orientation to prepare you properly, to, to find out uh, what you can expect from that new role, that, that new course at uni, that new job, and also what is expected of you as a student or as an employee. And I learned the importance of orientation the hard way back at university. I joined a club called the Officer Training Corps. It's a club set up by the British Army to give students a taste of what it's like to serve as an officer in the armed forces. And they take it very seriously. You know, they pay you for, for uh, your time. They expect you to go down every week and go through these drills and learn these important lessons of orientation before they put you out in the field to do these exercises and all that kind of thing. Now, sadly, I didn't sign up for the best of reasons. I signed up because I wanted to just get into combat gear every weekend and go out on expeditions and have fun with a big rifle. Basically just a, a grown-up excuse to be G.I. Joe. <laughs> and so I didn't take my orientation very seriously. I wanted to go on the expeditions, but I didn't go to the drill nights. So I actually don't know what I'm going to be doing. And it really showed. When they put me out in the field, we were supposed to look at these different hand signals, like this means stop, this means crouch down on the ground. I was, hoping, I was running around like a headless chicken. I never knew what anyone was doing. And then there was my rifle. I was supposed to know how to activate the safety on this large assault weapon, thankfully not loaded, that they had given to me to look after. And I was waving it around, around the rest of the troop, and the CEO, my commanding officer, he brought me up and then absolute fool with me in front of all of them, saying, Tim, where's the safety? And so, yes, I was really shown up because I didn't know what I was supposed to do. I didn't know what was expected from me and what to expect. Orientation is very important. And in our verses this evening in Revelation 10 and 11, we're given, as it were, an orientation as God's church. We're, we're told what we can expect and what is expected of us in the here and now. As we come to Revelation 10, we, we've got to remember we're partway through the blowing of the seven trumpet calls of God. We started in last week in Revelation 8 and 9. We saw those first six angels blowing those six trumpets. Uh, that represented those partial judgments from God upon our unbelieving world. And so as we come to Revelation 10, John's expecting to hear the, the seven trumpet blow. We had one, two, three, four, five, six, and now. Surely seven has come. Surely we're now going to witness the, the final great judgment of God in which he's going to restore all things 
back unto himself, deal with sin and death once for all, and restore all things for his glory. But just like the seven seals that we saw earlier in Revelation 6 and 7, what we have here in Revelation 10 and 11, this long pause, this long interlude between the sick and the seven trumpets. You see, a lot more needs to be said to prepare for the final day, for the blowing of that seventh trumpet, the final day of God's judgment. And the preparation we see here, it doesn't actually start directly with us as God's church. It starts with John, God's prophet for us. Chapter 10, we have as it were, God's orientation for John before the final day. And it starts with a word of reassurance. A word of reassurance. You remember, John has just witnessed uh, those first six trumpets, those first partial judgments of God upon our unbelieving world back in Revelation 8 and 9. And do you remember what we saw at the end of chapter 9? We saw that even those terrible judgments would not cause the world at large to repent, to turn back to God and have life in his hand. So if, until the seven trumpet sounds, the world at large will remain defiant to God and his purposes. And that means that the faithful church of God's day will continue to suffer as they go against the flow, as they live for God and his Son, our Lord Jesus, as those who are, who are in the world, but not of the world. John needs encouragement. And so God starts in chapter 10 with this great word of assurance. Come with me to chapter 10, and let's just read verse 1 together. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. Now John being no doubt about who this mighty angel serves in life and the way that he first appears to John. Uh, the cloud he is wrapped in, the rainbow over his head, his face like the sun. These are all symbols that we seen in Revelation, and they represent God's incomparable authority, that no matter what, he is in charge. He is in charge. But there's this final one in particular. His legs like pillars of fire. And they symbolize how God is still very much working out his purposes to deliver his people. To deliver his people. You see, remember, God guided Israel from slavery in Egypt, and brought them into the promised land. You remember, how did he do that at night? He did it by a pillar of fire that went ahead of the people. And so just in the appearance of this angel to John, he's being reassured, God is still in charge, and he will deliver John and his faithful church in the end. That's the appearance of the angel, and now the angel speaks. Actually, he roars like a lion. And we're told that these seven thunders respond uh, we're not actually told what the seven sons are saying, but we can tell that John knows what they say. See, verse 4. I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. John is given a word that is especially for him, a word that we do not receive. I think it's just a reminder that even in Revelation, we aren't given the full picture of God's plans for his world. Oh, what we do have, it comes by John, his authorized servant, his messenger, who still knows more than us. 
No, it's we as God's people. We keep on listening. We keep on listening to John, even as things maybe don't go as we hope and plan in the world at the moment. God's words by John are a true guide for us. Well, now the angel does speak a word that we can understand. Have a look at verse 6. He swears by God himself that there will be no more delay. The seventh trumpet, that trumpet John's still waiting for, it will sound soon. And as all that needs to happen before God's final day of judgment has taken place, it's not far off. Basically, the next thing on God's to do is. So, both in the appearance of this mighty angel and in the words that he does speak to John, well, God's assuring John is assuring us that he is in charge no matter what we face in the present. He will deliver his church in the end. But as we wait for that end, we see here John still has important work to do, and so do we. The angel gives him a commission in verse 8. We've had assurance, and now we see a commission, John's commission. Verse 8, go, take the scroll that is opened in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. The angel is holding this little scroll in his right hand, much like the scroll we saw back in Revelation 5. Remember that scroll that contained God's plans to restore our world from sin and death? That the scroll that only Jesus, uh, the Lamb who was slain, could open, could put into effect because he alone, by God's power, has defeated sin and death. He has ransomed us, those who are otherwise dead in sin, by his love to God and granted us a new life with him. And now the angel gives John a little scroll, much like the earlier one, but it's open. The scroll's been open. This little scroll basically represents the plan that God has to work out the victory of Jesus, his gospel, in our world before his return. That's what the little scroll is about. God's plan for his people, his church, before the end comes. And it's all to do with our ministry to the gospel, our witness to Jesus. Well, John is told to take it and eat it. But he's warned that as he does, verse 9, it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. It's a sweet word. It's a tasty word, but it will cause great bitterness to John. That's very much like the experience of Ezekiel. At the beginning of his vision, he received a, a sweet scroll in his vision as God's promise, and was called to speak God's good word to his people, but it was also a bitter word. It was a hard word of judgment. It, it was a word by which God's people would learn they would still suffer for a time. And now John here is called to speak a similar word. It will be a sweet word, a good word for God, but it will be bitter as well. In some ways, the word we're about to see in chapter 11 will be painful for us. We're going to see that as we get into this orientation. We're going to see those two things intertwined of goodness and suffering together. A sweet but bitter word for us. So let's come down to our orientation in chapter 11. And the first point of orientation to prepare us for the here and now as we await that final trumpet, the final judgment of God is this. God's church is secure but tranquil. God's church is secure but trample. Have a look at Revelation 11, verse 1. 
Then I was given a measure of God, like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Again, the background for this is Ezekiel and his prophecy. He witnessed in a vision the measuring of God's temple. And that in itself, it pointed forward to something far greater, to God's promise that he would work to save and restore his people from sin and bring them close to him again, despite the ways in which they have but see, John is asked to measure more than Ezekiel. Ezekiel measures the temple, but John measures not only the temple, but God's people before the altar as well. It's a symbol of how God has now worked to reconcile us, his people, to himself. Not by a stone altar, like the altar that John sees here, but through the altar of God's Son, Jesus who offered himself up once for all to deal with our sin, with all the ways that make us dirty before God, make us unacceptable to him. Because his blood has been shed in our place, now through faith in him, we can be reconciled. We can have life in God's presence, the very life we were made for. And that's what Jesus has done. He secured us for that life with God. And that's what the temple represents here. Jesus, with us, his church, made holy for God, by him, his blood. That's the altar. That's a great assurance, isn't it, for us as a church? It's a sweet word from John. As we trust in Jesus and in him alone, we know we are secure with God in his presence no matter what, as his people. God is with us and for us as we trust in Christ. But you see what John is also told in verse 2? <clears throat> Do not measure forth outside the temple. Leave that house, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. See, here we see God's temple, specifically the part exposed to the world, the outer court, and it's trampled on by the world, along with the rest of the holy city, and we're told it's going to happen for 42 months. Basically, a long but limited time. Being told we as God's people in Christ are secure. We are in His presence. And no matter what happens, nothing can separate us from His love as we trust in His Son. But we can still expect to be trampled by the world. This is the bitter word that John has for us. We will suffer in a way that the world is not for the moment. In fact, we will suffer at the hands of the world itself. And there were plenty of examples of that in John's day. We've already seen in the first few chapters of Revelation the church in Smyrna ridiculed and impoverished because they wouldn't adopt the godless practices of their culture. And that's the experience for the church in many parts of our world today. The church in Syria and Iraq placed under house arrest or murdered if they don't recant their faith and believe on something other than Christ. The underground church here, much closer to home, in Malaysia, many of whom can't meet with us in public today as God's people for fear of the authorities over this land. This is the first orientation that God has for us who have been called to life with him and his son, and who wait for that final day when our salvation will be complete. For the moment, we can expect to suffer as God's people in different degrees. We can expect to be trampled by the world. Now, 
for the most part, most of us here are pretty secure. And yet, we know one day that may all change. And even now, we will be as Christians called to suffer in smaller but still painful ways in chaos society. As we refuse to join in the godless behavior of our non-Christian friends, family, and colleagues. Oh, we refuse to get drunk, which is what they wrote in. We refuse to sleep around. We refuse to cheat on our taxes. We refuse to buy into the corruption and the injustice of our society. And that can be a position for us. From those same unbelieving friends and family and colleagues who, who just look at us strangely and maybe ridicule us, refuse to socialize us, just call us stupid. Why on earth are you cheating on your taxes like everybody else? Why are you in here? And we refuse to adopt those practices, not because we're trying to be self-righteous, but because we love Christ. And we treasure Him as Lord, and we know we owe our all to Him. Well, friends, if that's happening to you right now, don't be surprised by it if you're being opposed to standing up for Jesus. Take comfort. Because as you suffer for Him in the midst of this society, it's a mark that you belong to Him. As you're trampled in your love for the cross, it's a sign you're secure with him. Whatever the world throws at you, whatever our friends, our family might say, nothing can separate you from his love. But we can expect to be trampled. And that's especially true as we move on to our second point. The next part of our orientation as a church in the here and now, the powerful witness of God's church. You see, we're called not only to be trampled, but to witness while we wait. Look at verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. Now, if you're better at maps than I am, and I imagine most people in this room are better at maps than I am, you might have noticed that 1,260 days, well, that is the same length in months. 42, just about. That's right, I haven't got it. 1,260 divided by 30, pretty much a month, 30 days, that comes to 42. 42 months. As we see the 1,260 days and the 42 months put next to one another, it means that what they describe are basically the same period of time. See, the same long but limited time in which we're told the church is going to be trampled in the world, in this period of trampling, it will also be a time of great witness by the church. We see that witness as we're introduced to the two witnesses here. See in verse 4, there are also two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And John's first Jewish readers would have had Zechariah flashing through their minds as they saw that image. That's where we read of two olive trees that stand before the Lord of the earth, and they, they represented in Zechariah's vision the king and the high priest of his day. But you remember how we are described now as God's people? Back in Revelation 5, as those whom Jesus in his grace has ransomed to God by his love. Revelation 5, verse 10, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. These olive trees represent us, the church, and our witness to him. And that's reaffirmed again, verse 4. The, the olive trees are lampstands. That's the symbol of the church in Revelation. We saw in the first few chapters. These two witnesses represent us. 
But because they're witness, they represent specifically our testimony to Jesus. As we tell the good news that Jesus is Lord and that those who repent and trust on him can be forgiven their sin entirely, can have new life with God in his kingdom now and forevermore, as we take that wonderful gospel out. Well, that's what's being described here. But you see what else we're told? Here's a little test for you. I'm going to read verse 6. And ask yourself, who do these words remind you of? Think of famous Old Testament characters. Verse 6. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood, and to strike them out with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Who do those words remind you of? Elijah. Yeah, we've got Elijah first, haven't we? Uh, the power to shut the sky, and no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. It's exactly what God did by Elijah during his ministry against his own people. When they hardened their hearts against him, Elijah is prophet his word. Elijah was, as it were, rescued, but he was allowed to inflict that judgment on God's people for a time. And then what's the second one? Moses, that's one. Moses who had the power again by, by God's authority to turn waters to blood. Back in Exodus, turn the Nile into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague. And that's indeed what we saw in Exodus, isn't it? Our witness as a church to the gospel is like the witness of Moses and Elijah, even in their words and works of judgment. These two witnesses who did spectacular works of judgment as they faced much opposition in their day. It's amazing. God will use our testimony to his gospel, our testimony to Jesus, even as a powerful instrument of judgment. See, at verse 5, if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. Oh, falls from their mouth, that means the way God will judge others will be by the words of our mouths, but it will be a severe judgment. And friends, this is meant to be a comfort for us as God's people. God will judge those who oppose us for our witness to Jesus. Now, we're not going to turn rivers to blood. We're not going to bring about droughts for the here and now. No, actually, God will use us to do something far, far more powerful and lasting. You see, we pray and we hope that by our gospel witness as a church, God will use us to call people to repentance and faith in his son, that they might have eternal life in his name. But for those who not only refuse to repent, but actually oppose God's people violently as a result of our message, well, that will be a sign of God's judgment on them. As he hardens their hearts to the gospel, as as it were, it is close to them so that they will not know life in Christ as a result. And what will that lead? That will lead to them facing, for their own sin, God's full eternal judgment. That's a far more powerful lasting judgment than any plague or drought Moses and Elijah ever worked. Friends, our witness has eternal consequences, both for salvation and for judgment. And I know that I constantly fail to appreciate how awesome the duty we've been given by God's grace 
to be his kings and priests, to be witnesses to his gospel, so that he would work his eternal purposes through us right now. But that small group that meets on a Thursday morning in a Starbucks downtown, and there are some Christians there, but it's a mostly non-Christian group, and they're meeting together, and they're sharing their lives together, and the Christians are seeking to share Christ with them, and it doesn't seem significant. It's just a group of people chatting over coffee, opening the Bible together, and yet that meeting has eternal consequences. I wonder if it's even on our to-do witnessing to Jesus by our words, sharing his gospel. That's not a great task for us as a church. That's the only reason the seventh trumpet hasn't blown yet. There are still many out there to be saved for our witness. We have a part to play, each and every one of us, who God has called to his son. Now, many of you just don't know where to start. You know, we know the gospel. We believe the gospel. We don't have a clue how to go about sharing it with others. We need training. Good news is that here at St. Mary's, we're very, very keen on training. In fact, just last week, we started a new course called Six Steps to Talking About Jesus. Great opportunity to be trained to know how can I introduce Jesus and his gospel into a daily conversation with my friends, my family, my colleagues, that they might have the hope of eternal life. I might do my duty as a Christian in the year and now. Now, it started last Tuesday, but I know the course leader, Andy Mills, he's a nice guy. And I reckon that if you ask him really, really nicely on Tuesday night this week, he'll let you join. Okay? He might even recap the last session as well. Okay? If you want to sign up for that, come and see me or see Tim Nichols over there afterwards, and we'll put you in touch with Andy. And do make the most of that opportunity to get trained. If you just feel ill-equipped to be sharing the gospel with others, this is a great opportunity to get the training you need as we witness the Christ as well. Oh, it's, it's an incredible privilege. Uh, we've got to let that sink in. God will work his eternal purposes for salvation and for judgment for the world around us through the witness he bears by us to his gospel. That's amazing. Okay? That's amazing. And yet it won't be easy. And that's John's next point of orientation for us. We can expect things sooner or later to get worse before they get better, particularly in terms of what we face for our witness. Come to our third point, the silencing of God's church. Have a look in verse 7. And when they, the two witnesses, have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. John sees this terrifying beast arise who is given authority for a time to destroy the two witnesses, to kill them. In other words, to kill the witness of the church, our gospel witness. You might remember from our Old Testament reading, Daniel received that vision of great beasts who came one after the other after the other, and those great beasts were identified. Daniel 7, 17, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. And in that prophecy then, these kings, they're characterized as rulers of nations who oppose God and who cause his people to suffer as a result as they set up their own earthly rule 
revelation. It, it represents world orders that are united in opposition against God and his gospel and those who seek to share it and witness to it. And the opposition will seem very powerful. We're told in verse 8, after the witnesses are killed for three and a half days, their bodies are, are dishonored and it says they're not even buried. There was nothing more shameful than that in John's day. That to die and not even have your body buried, have it to lie out on the street. And which street would it be? Well, we're told this great city is identified as Sodom, but then Egypt, but then the place where our Lord Jesus was crucified. Of course, that's Jerusalem. And these cities, they don't describe just one physical place, they just represent an area in which sin goes unchecked. Sorry. In which God's people are opposed harshly. Egypt, the Exodus. And as Jesus himself was, so his servants are put to death for their testimony. The one who spoke the very words of God killed at the hands of wicked men. Jerusalem, the place of the cross. And just as Herod and Pilate, who were enemies before the crucifixion of Christ, just as they became good friends after that evil deed was done, or so we're told here. There will be great rejoicing in this city by the world as the witness of the church's silence for a short time. See, friends, as we witness to Christ, we mustn't be surprised. Rather, we must be prepared for things sooner or later to get worse rather than get better. Should be surprised when we see gospel witness suddenly silenced in violent ways, when we see sin go unchecked in society, and when it seems like the beast of the world opposed to God and his people is winning. We've seen this occur many times, down the ages in the history of the church. Uh, back in England in the 16th century, during the Reformation, there were two bishops, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. And they fiercely preached the true gospel of grace to the authorities of their day. And their leaders told them, no, you can't teach that. You can't teach a gospel of grace that we're saved by nothing but God's undeserved favor. You've got to preach a gospel of both grace and works. God helps us, but we work our way to him as well. And Latimer and Ridley knew that that was not the gospel of Christ. And they could not teach it. They refused to recant their faith, and so they were burned to death at the in the center of the city of Oxford. And if you go to Oxford, you go to Wall Street, you can still see the monument that stands in their honor to this day. Their witness was silenced by earthly rulers for a time. But as they endured their execution at the hands of the world, Hugh Latimer turned to his young protege and he said, he said, I'll be burned at stake. Be of good cheer, Master Ridley and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle in England as I hope by God's grace shall never be put out. You see, he was convinced that by the example of their sacrifice, he would encourage so many more to rise up and witness to the gospel that they gave their lives proclaiming. So yes, their death was celebrated for a time. Yes, the rulers of their society thought they had won, but Latimer's words did prove true. As gospel witness flourished with all the more zeal in the light of their sacrifice. And that is a recurring pattern that we see down the history of the church. 
Jim Elliott, more recently in the 1950s, martyred as he witnessed to the Orkney Indians of Ecuador, galvanizing Christian mission in the US and abroad for the next decade. The church in China, devastated under the reign of communism, under Chairman Mao, and now thriving, with many believers being added to it each day, under harsh conditions, yes, but still growing. Friends, at times it will look like the world and Satan behind it is winning. Gospel witness of rotten, violent suffers for a time. But God will ensure the mission of his church will be completed. Even as some are called to lose their lives in the example of their Lord. And I think that this warning here, this vision, it does actually point forward to a time of greater darkness yet to come, that we have not witnessed yet. Uh, when the witness of the church seems to be extinguished completely for a short time. We, we won't get too deeply into it, but later if you go back to that prophecy in Daniel 7, 9-22, we, we read of a beast that follows the other beasts, and he's terrified. He's far worse than any that have come before, and he is allowed to conquer and kill the saints for a time before the final judgment. Then in 1 John 2, 18, we read, we just click on, no, we've gone a little bit too far back, just back, okay, we'll go there. 1 John 2, 18, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Whilst the beast here in Revelation represents society's down the ages, that war against God's people and their witness, it seems that that's a pattern that will culminate in a terrible climax, when there will be one who does come before the end, and under the great world authority that he has granted for a time, will extinguish all witness to the gospel. I don't think that means that the church itself is destroyed. It will be a time of hardening by which our gospel witness is not effective. But yet it will be a short-lived victory. God will not abandon his church. And so we come to the final point of our orientation as we look at the incredible future we have to look forward to as we testify to Christ now. And it's actually, it's this future, it is this certain future that we need to focus on, we need to delight in, we need to remember every day if we are going to testify to Christ in the midst of opposition for the time being. Coming to verse 11, the vindication of God's church. And after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were holding them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies beheld them. Friends, it is heaven that has the last word. It is heaven that has the last word. One day, when that seventh trumpet blows, all peoples will have to recognize that Jesus is the true King. It will be the day when he does ultimately vindicate his church in every way, when we as believers and all who have trusted in Christ are raised from the dead like him. And all we see, all will see, on that day when they are raised too, that our testimony to him as Lord was genuine. As he calls us up, and yet, as all unbelievers are raised, it will be a terrible day for them. Verse 13, and in that hour there was a great earthquake, 
Tenth city fell, where 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Yet the end of time events will cause even the bitterest of Jesus' enemies to have to acknowledge him. They have to give glory to the God in heaven, albeit begrudgingly, as God redeems us, his church, in every way. Not just through this judgment to come, but that's only the beginning. See, as we, as we do finally come to the seventh trumpet blow in this vision, we see the eternal future that we have beyond that judgment to come. Verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And <clears throat> shall reign forever and ever. Friends, this is the day that we live for as Christians. This is the day that comforts us in the midst of whatever trials we face as we share Christ with others. Whatever we endure in life, nothing can compare to the eternal glory we will know when we are reconciled in every way to God and Jesus our King. No more suffering, no more tears, no more pain, no more death, but the very peace, the rest that we long for even now, at the bottom of our hearts, being reconciled in every way to the God that we were made to know and find our joy in, as we are able to give him all the glory he deserves forever. And I know that that's hard for us to comprehend right now. You see, we're so used to living in a world that is full of corruption and suffering, where God's throne is honoured, and we see the tyranny of sin in many ways prevail. Even as we enjoy the good things that God gives to us for now in this life, it's hard to get away from the fact that our world is so broken. And it can be discouraging. I went into a coffee bean a few weeks ago, and I love my coffee. I do count that as a great blessing from God in this life. And yet as I paid the cashier, uh, I noticed this in the corner of my eye. Just coming up. You quench your thirst. Now please help us quench their suffering. Uh, this charity has raised money to combat lupus disease in the third world. And it's wonderful that efforts are being made to deal with that sickness and relieve suffering in the moment, in the here and now. But friends, what we're seeing here is that the ultimate answer to all of the brokenness and all of the sufferings and all of the corruption in our world right now, the ultimate answer will not be found in this world. It will be established in the next. We have to have the right expectations. We need to root our hope, our security, not in the circumstances of the here and now, this world destined for judgment, but in the victory to come. Or oh, the victory that Christ has established for his cross, but the victory that will come in his fullness at the end. This kingdom, his kingdom, and this is the one worth it. This is the one, if necessary, worth dying Where God is on the throne, recognized in the light of the Bible. Where lupus disease and all other suffering and corruption are extinguished forever because the old order of things have passed.
pass away, and in its place is the blessing of God's coming. The God we're made tonight. See why the elders praise him? It's a victory chart. Verse 18, the nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great. God will deal with all the injustice of our world, with all the corruption, and it's so certain John puts this in the past tense, though it hasn't happened yet. But it hasn't happened We aren't there yet. Like John, we are still waiting for this seventh trumpet to blow in the here and now. Brothers and sisters, this, these chapters have been given to us as a crucial orientation as we prepare for that day. So that you won't be like me when I signed up for the officer training corps back in Oxford, missing my orientation. I didn't know what to expect or what was expected of me. And it just led to frustration and disappointment and discouragement. No, we've got to let this orientation sit down deep into our hearts by God's grace. What have we seen? Let me just quickly recap. What can we expect in here and now? One, we can expect to suffer at the hands of our world, to be trampled. That's part of God's plan. And yet, as we are trampled, but as we trust in Christ all the more, he keeps us secure, no matter what. Secondly, we can expect God to use us powerfully as we witness to his gospel. We pray hope bringing others to repent and faith in his son before it's too late, and his kingdom does come. And knowing that even if we are rejected and violently opposed to that witness, it's a sign of God's judgment on his world that he will bring at the end. And thirdly, we can expect opposition. We can expect that sooner or later things are going to get worse before they get better. At times it's going to feel like the world is winning. But it won't. Because we can put forward finally to our vindication. Root our hope in the new life that God has granted us and will grant us in His Son. When that seventh trumpet blows, when He calls us into His eternal kingdom and makes all things new. This is our orientation for the here and now that we wait. So let's ask God to help us live wisely in the light of Let's pray again. Church and the world is opposed violently. 
please help the encouragement of these words to sink in. But that is a sign of your judgment. And that one day, we, your people, will be vindicated in every way as Christ returns. Fix our hearts and our minds on that day that we will be living for that day. We will be willing to die 